Welcome to Out of the Blank. back to another episode of out of the blank podcast I'm here with carolyn carolyn introduce yourself hi. to everybody hi my name's carolyn i'm an astronomer but uh, my particular focus is that i really love looking how ancient communities connected to the night sky um so i have a bit of a title it's archaeo astronomer but um yeah normally people just say i'm an astronomer <laughs> Okay, so you said astronomer. Now, astronomer not as a passion project, but astronomer as that's like a field of study that you work in. That's correct, yeah. So um, I, my academic background is in astronomy. Uh, what, uh, what was that shift to get uh, decided to look up at the stars? I mean, everyone loves looking up at the stars. I think that's everybody's answer is like, oh, it's just so fascinating seeing all these stars up there. But what was, did you have a particular interest of why you wanted to get into that? Yeah, um, I'm a very outdoorsy type of person. So uh, I originally studied environmental sciences and I spent a lot of time outdoors, um, as you do when you're looking at landscape. Yeah. And I suppose it became, I, I became more and more aware of um, the sky and it makes up 50% of what we see. And I know people are really disconnected nowadays to even what's going on in the landscape, but they're even more so disconnected to the motions of the sky. And it just fascinated me. I just wanted to go out and learn about where the sun would be at certain times of the year, what was going on with the moon and, and yeah, where, where all the stars and the Milky Way would be. And I am incredibly lucky to live in a really dark sky location. So that gave me the opportunity to explore those ideas more. Um, but I did become aware that uh, as I was doing it more and more that um, how lucky I was. And I suppose that led me into this whole realm of looking at ancient dark skies and those changes in dark skies, how, how they've come about more recently with more lighting and what we can do to conserve it. So it did tie back into my environmental credibilities and background as well looking at sustainable dark skies and things like that so. do you think that there's a recent interest that's been sparking up for people wanting to look at i guess more into space i mean we've all been doing space travel i guess recently the past couple of years has been advancing pretty fast but i mean that ufo topic that's now getting brought up a lot more everyone's like wait aliens are real and they're freaking out me i like more of the older concept of star mapping I think looking up at the stars, not the whole, I like the astrology thing is fun when it comes to knowing what your horoscope is. I think that's a fun idea concept. Sure. But I just like kind of how they were able, like people use those for traveling purposes. I mean, one of this, so there's a, like a kind of a conspiracy theory out there. It's called the phantom time hypothesis, which is that in around 700 AD, there was a guy who was ruling and he wanted to rule in the new millennia. So he got with the Pope. And at this time, religion was so big that they created this 300 years of fake history known as like the dark ages with King Arthur and all this and spread it around. So they actually advanced the clock forward 300 years. So we're actually not in 2022 were in you know 300 years before but the way that they were able to prove that that was false is that i think it was in islam or something uh overseas and another country they had accounts of star map records from 794 AD to prove that it was false. But then this gets into another concept of everyone's living in their own realities. While I'm in my country and you're in your country, same time period, completely different things are going on. And, and you've also got to realize that a calendar is a human construct anyway. Yeah. Um, so we have created this thing that we live by. We, and cultures don't necessarily have needed to create a calendar in the way that we have. So ours is a Romanized version of the splitting up of the sun going, transiting, you know, round its orbit, us 
going round this sun in a year, you don't necessarily need to make a calendar on that foundation. So you could use the moon to make a calendar. You could use um, a mixture of the sun and the moon. So there are certain um, significant dates within our calendar, such as Easter, which is set from a solar lunar um, date. But yeah, you, you're talking about them cutting out a huge section of history in um, 300 years. Yeah. I think that could possibly be discredited by archaeological remains within different countries and timelines about when things came along. So you would have um, elements of things that, that were discovered and were left behind. So we've got the Romans, let's say, leaving um, the UK at the end of the uh, mid, mid end of the fifth century. And then you've got this dark age period. Well, there's more and more evidence about what was going on in that, in that period. Um, I know it was originally termed the Dark Ages because there wasn't a huge amount of evidence, yeah. um, but th that evidence has now just built and built with various things. So we, well, we've actually had an archaeological dig down here at um, the um, castle at Tintagel, which was supposedly Arthur Pendragon's um, father's home, um, Tintagel Castle. And <laughs> if we're going to go into kind of the mixture of folklore and, and construct of stories and how it comes down a narrative. Um, so Tintagel was this amazing castle which was built, um, but it stood on a, a, a connected causeway next to um, a small island with a connected causeway to the mainland. And this archaeological dig has actually found underneath this later castle, remnants of quite a large uh, 6th century um, mansion house, which feeds directly into the, these ideas of uh, there being an important person living there, just post-Romans, the Romans leaving the UK. And that obviously then feeds into these ideas and narratives around King Arthur. And um, if you get a chance, have a, have a look at uh, Tintagel. It's got this wonderful sculpture um, which they put in of, of King Arthur himself, this massive sculpture, um, which, you know, has some, um, yeah, people who, who don't like it, but I, I really like it. And they've also, because the, the original land bridge disconnected in um, the 1500s, I believe, they've also now put in this wonderful bridge between the mainland and this island so people can um, approach the island in the same way but yeah we're kind of moving off topic there a little bit aren't well, we well, <laughs> the name of the show is out of the blank but um <laughs> yeah. see that that's what really i guess piqued my interest about your profile was that you were taking pictures of actual older landscape stuff like i mean everyone oh, god I, I i always blank on this name i keep forgetting what he, is it hedgestone Stonehenge? Stonehenge. Stonehenge is the name <laughs> of it. What is that? I don't know what it is. Is it a way to predict time by looking up at the sun? I have no clue, but it's old history. And what I really love about old kind of ancient history is that it's not a my history or your history. It's a our history stuff that we just can't describe or can't explain. And I think that brings more connectivity with it. But when you look at all these older ancient like giant stone blocks or these things that are just sitting there and in the midst of an open landscape or something, and you start wondering what these were being used for and then you start getting into the realm of like what about the giants and i saw you had that in your profile as well too i was like all right we're gonna have a field day because this is a lot of ancient stuff that seems like it's so far long ago but it's not really that long ago in the grand scheme of how long the earth has really been around so I don't know. I just like I, that's the stuff that interests me. And that's what I figured, you know, getting into especially your field of work as well, too. It's probably what really interests you, considering how many pictures I see on your profile have you taken just I mean, amazing landscape shots. But I'm like, OK, so it's something different. It's not like the basic thing. Like usually someone can pull up a picture off on online or something and be able to be like, here's what a uh, uh, Stonehenge looks like and you're like well I could just go there take a picture of it and show you it and that's it's better it's actually better being there than actually getting a picture off the internet yeah so um yeah these ancient sites just absolutely fascinate me and as I said the, the connectivity that um could have ha occurred between them and the people that were living at the time but then there's also a contemporary connectivity which is like what yourself or I would have if we went to these sites and started to experience the sky and phenomenology of things happening to us 
at those sites. So maybe we might want to head there at a significant date, such as um, a winter solstice and uh, where the sun has tracked to its most southerly point and it al almost reaches a standstill position on the horizon. And we might want to watch a sunset at that site. Um, that is a contemporary experience. It's not saying that the people in prehistory didn't also have that experience, but it would have been markedly different to um, an experience that we may have had because they may have had different layers of um, reality, um, which they would have imposed on, on that themselves. So they may have had, had different narratives about why, why they wanted to do it, how they wanted to experience it. And they would have maybe approached it in different ways to us. So we, we do it with almost a sense of reverence if we go to a site such as, um, as you've mentioned Stonehenge, I'll, I'll mention Stonehenge, and it has this summer solstice sunrise. And you, you do get the druids there with drumming and this um, layers of, of interest from different groups which um, have bound themselves to this narrative of uh, people attaching the um, wonder and awe to cosmology. And um, yeah, we, that's, that's a contemporary view. How these prehistoric people engaged with the site, we don't know because they didn't leave any records. The only records we have is these stone blocks and um, artifacts that we find within the landscape. And we can only pick apart their thoughts and feelings about these by looking at the ways that the skies interact with these sites. And it's not just, um, as I say, winter solstice, it might be other ideas um, such as shadows. So um, you mentioned giants. I like to make myself nice and big with my shadow. When the <laughs> sun drops low, you get yeah. nice big shadows and the shadow play to be had at a lot of these sites, the way that stones connect shadows to other stones. But there's also um, moonlight. You might like to visit on the moonlight and see low light level conditions, which can aid in bringing out different carvings on some of the rocks and things. So there's lots of different ways that we can um, approach these sites. And I suppose my main approach is to use a kind of a playful um, way of experiencing the site. And from that, hopefully garnering some, some sort of interpretation about how these people in the past could have also experienced similar things to what I was doing. And they may have um, found awe and wonder from that because they don't have all the distractions that we do of modern life. So, yeah. but <laughs> now, when you put yourself in that mindset, though, like, you know, get kind of like put in, I guess you would have to put your mind frame and I guess the time period that they were thinking that is not really so much as like all of maybe the issues or type of the stress that you can kind of have now when you think I think definitely if we talk about like um, technology, for instance, everyone says always ages people. Um, I definitely think kids now have a lot more, I guess, I would say weight to their mind than maybe people did back in the day, not just I mean, it might have been harder to survive, but there's just so much other things like anxiety and all these types of things that are kind of all over the place. Now, when you put yourself in that mindset of trying to understand understand that type of history in that time period back then, do you find that you just have to let all your kind of cares go away like a child usually did when they had an imaginary friend? I don't want to say um, dumbing yourself down. I don't want to say that because that they did some amazing things, but it's putting yourself in a mindset where you're not really conflicted with emotions of worry, stress, all these types of things that I think a lot of people overanalyze now because of just the time period that we in and how it's kind of evolved us in a way. So trying to understand Hedgestone for us might be like, are these complicated pieces of art? Are they? And you could just rattle off a list of very sophisticated things. But then maybe for them, it was just like, no, I wanted to build a couple blocks to be able to get shadows and have entertainment. And you're like, what? Like, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it. Cave paintings back in the day, they are now starting to find out now that if you put certain candles in the cave on certain locations of where they had fat residue from when they used to use candles, they use animal fat. Um, if they put them in the same exact spots. 
the cave paintings on the wall, you would think are ways of like maybe recording history or doing something like that. They noticed that this candle, the flickering of it would make the picture move back and forth, back and forth. And they realized this actually might've been a form of modern day movies, not a form of writing down their history, but a form of trying to entertain themselves late nights in caves when there was nothing else to do when you couldn't go out and hunt or you couldn't do all these types of things. Um, so I, I think for me, um, I when I go to an ancient site and I, I'm regularly out at these places, as you probably, as you've said, from the amount of pictures that I put on social media at them, um, I do it in some respect for my own mental health. I, I spend a lot of time out walking and thinking and um, decompressing modern life and um, yet slowing myself down. Um, and I, I suppose when you reach an ancient site, the, it's very difficult, especially with some of the more impressive ones, um, to actually not be um, connected in some ways to thoughts about people being here for a long time before. So you have got some um, intrinsic connectivity to our ancestors um, built in that I would you know, suggest to anyone, go out to some of these sites and, and just walk around them, spend a little bit of time. They are, they tend to be, I'm not saying all of them, but they do tend to be in quite remote um, locations. Um, some of them are very peaceful locations. So they're in um, kind of moorland fields. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the ones which have survived here in the southwest west have probably survived because they are in hard to reach locations. Um, uh, which aren't, you know, busy with lots of other human activity. So um, there are obviously lots of examples which do sit alongside housing estates or in roundabouts or on main roads, but they're kind of not in the numbers that we would get them in the more remote areas, which I tend to access. So I am accessing areas which are quite quiet once you go out there. And um, I, it quite often takes a long time for me to walk to some of these sites so I think I did nine miles the other day to just Jeez. go to one one stone circle are you wearing I've your Fitbit been... when you do that so yeah you count the I do I do I do count my steps yeah I like you gotta I like record to keep that track of, yeah uh, yeah of how, how far I walk in a year so um but yeah so these sites are, are quite some of them are, aren't that accessible so by the time you reach these sites, you might have had um, quite a struggle to get to some of them. So they're over fogs, they're over, you know, occasionally bits of barbed wire, you know, and yeah, so they, they're tricky places to get to, some of them. That was, but the, that, that wasn't accidental, though. That was purposeful that people did that, right? Like if you're going to build some type of hedgestone type thing, you're not going to do it near your, your town, your civilization. You don't want anything around it. And people probably wouldn't want to build anything near something like that. And it's like um recently or not recently, maybe it was like last year or something that or a year before um, I heard that they were going to build a tunnel under hedgestone. Or am I'm I saying it wrong hedge. again? Stonehenge. Stonehenge. Good yeah, God. I, lo I love hedge. There's just there's just one freaking word I can't ever remember, and that's the that's one. That's right. Um, but it's, it's probably good. one of my favorite ones. I think I think everyone. Um, if there's anything with Stonehenge in a title, it always gets in the news. So if you're ever going to write anything about ancient communities, you'll try and get Stonehenge into the title because then it will go into the news. So I love the fact. That you can't remember the name of it i know it's like everyone's <laughs> like TV. yeah nobody knows what i'm talking about either but yeah Hedgestone. And I, so so the point about them being remote is probably incorrect because it's it's possible that there were monuments across the whole of the uk even in the more built-up areas and they've just been removed over time because the farmland was better so they would have removed the stones to the edge of the fields and and continued, brought the larger machinery in. We've got lots of evidence of that, or that they've built housing estates where they were before. And we do have certain sites knocking up against housing estates. The reason why the ones that have survived have survived is because they tend to be in the more out, out of reach areas, the harder to reach, the, the, the kind of areas of the UK also which had less woodland so they built these monuments out of stone um it's thought that there were monuments in the east of england but they were all built out of wood and these monuments have degraded over the years and, and disappeared so 
Um, but yeah, that's why we have so many remaining in, in these western, more remote parts of the UK, such as uh, Cornwall, where I live, and uh, Wales, uh, Scotland. So these, this western seaboard, where, where they built them out of big pieces of rock. Um, but yeah, there, there, there is always questions about how we're going to preserve the sites and whether they should be preserved for how we want them to be preserved or whether they should be preserved how we feel that um, past people would have want them preserved. And um, I know the, there's huge discussions under that tunnel and um, under Stonehenge, and it's, I don't believe it's going ahead now, but the reason why some people were pro it was because of this road that runs alongside it, which is a bit of a bottleneck, because it goes from a double to a single track. And by taking it underground, they were reopening the landscape, so removing all traffic from that landscape, that open bowl with Stonehenge in. Um, but in doing that, it was going to have some um, invasive um, archaeology, you know, digging happen to build the, build this tunnel, which would have disturbed archaeology within the wider landscape. So um, it was hugely controversial. Um, I could see the benefits and, you know, the disadvantages of it. Um, but, you know, overall, I, I think the disadvantages were um, primary because, you know, we would be disturbing things in the land, the wider landscape. So these things aren't alone as well. So you talk about Stonehenge, around it is a huge amount of monuments which make up a whole landscape. Of, and um, these people lived and worked right next to these monuments. So uh, where you get the, the stone circles, you've also got the hot circles. Um, they weren't living and working and then walking like I did nine miles to visit a stone circle. <laughs> they, they were living and working next to the stone circle. They yeah. were part of their community. So, um, so yeah, these are much wider landscapes than just one monument themselves, even though Stonehenge is yeah, a big, famous monument. It's, it's got a huge amount around it as well, which is, which is equally interesting. Well, what, what what would you say is your your primary, I would say, goal? Is it is preservation, right? It's not on an aspect of understanding things. I think you can try and uh, really just trying to classify anything as like, this is what this means would be impossible. Like we were talking about earlier, you can put your own kind of interpretation to it, but nobody's really going to be able to know unless we develop time travel. And honestly, if there's time travel out there, I'd rather go to a Mike Tyson fight in his prime. But hey, I mean, that works too if you want to go find out why um, Stonehenge was the way it was. But I think it a lot of it has to do with preservation now. I'm just curious, is that, am I right? and saying that because I feel like there's a lot of issues like even with the positives and negatives of building a road or doing something to help with traffic flow to Stonehenge me I'm like no walk if you got to walk nine miles you got to walk 10 that's how go to the Grand Canyon you got to take a crappy bus all the way to the Grand Canyon up a mountain for an hour and a half in this jam-packed thing bumps left and right I've hit my head on a window 36 times just by trying to fall asleep while going up the ride you have to go through that because I never want to go back. The Grand Canyon was beautiful, but I don't want to go through that again. Go through hell to get the gift out of it. And that's what I see with Stonehenge. And if you're going to make traffic flow increase or find a way to slow it down by building a giant road, and it affects the landscape. I just, to me, that's like touching something that's primal. And I don't really like that type of concept because there's no undoing anything that you try and add or you try what you would consider fix this kind of seems like something that has to be left alone and preserved so yeah you asked me what my goal is i don't have an ultimate goal but i suppose um yeah this idea to preserve um would be up there in a list if i was going to do a top 10 of things that i would like to think that i live by ethics um, but yeah, um, definitely dark skies as well. Um, I am absolutely passionate about the attention of dark skies. I think that um, they are something which have been overlooked. But as you say, people are starting to get out and enjoy the night sky a bit more during lockdown. I think during um, this period of COVID that we've just had, where people have had to live locally and not go out so much, they found things to do within their own home and their own garden and yeah sitting out we, we had some great weather that first uh, March April May it was just wall-to-wall -wall clear skies which doesn't happen and sunshine 
and all of a sudden people were looking up and there weren't the aeroplanes up there and the sky quality improved because there wasn't the traffic on the road there was a, a huge amount of nature all of a sudden um so there's all this nocturnal nature which once you start adding in light um gets very confused about um you know daytime nighttime even normal animals what when you start adding in a huge amount of light, they, they get very confused about what's daytime and nighttime. They've got these, you know, built-in evolutionary tracks of where day and night fall. And if you take that away from them, they can get very confused. So um, it has this extension into, into all that wildlife and, and natural life. But um, there is this thing of preserving an ancient part of um, our vision, which, which if you can think we haven't got any more in the landscape, you might have some elements of that in America with your big national park, but even those have had a hand of humanity touch them. And um, the, the night sky was one area where there wasn't a huge hand of humanity touching it. And unfortunately, um, that is starting to change as um, we start commercializing space travel. Uh, and particularly with the release of uh, a large amount of satellites into the sky as well, um, what we would consider ancient view of the night sky is changing because um, I'm not saying whether that would be for the better or the worse, but it is changing. Um, and um, there is now a lot of satellite streakings across the sky and, uh, and that's only going to increase because um, Although there are certain companies like SpaceX, which are already releasing, um, and I know OneTel in the UK started to release, but the, the, every country out there wants their own satellite system. You know, so they're going to become, I, I see them as like a sparkly hairnet around the world. Um, <laughs> and um, we're going to have all these satellites up there. Now, the issue is, is you get some companies which um, approach this in a more environmental and more considerate manner than others and some of them will um, make their satellites reduce um, altitude and burn up in the outer atmosphere as they become defunct other um, people will release satellites which aren't to the same high quality and maybe have batteries at first or bits of paint flake off and um, if you read anything about the issues around the International Space Station and problems with space junk, you'll know that even a speck of collector's paint can cause issues at the incredibly high speeds that things are orbiting at. And it once we junk up our um, inner atmosphere, basically, um, of, of space, then it's going to be a real issue going forward for humanity, um, unless we can find ways to clean it up. Um, but yeah, these are all questions that are kind of, you know, ethical questions at the moment. Should, you know, companies be able to, to lead the way on this or should there be international regulation? Because at the moment there isn't any international regulation in place. And um, Well, space and is already weaponized. I've talked to astrophysicists and radio astronomers who talk about that's the biggest, that's the hardest thing to reach a space civilization or something. It's been weaponized already from trying to clip other satellites' wings like you saw on the show Space Force or trying to steal data off a satellite that's out there already. It makes it complicated. Um, for human growth, but I think that's always been here throughout history. There's always been different tribe type thinking and different mindsets. It's very, very hard to back down from the ethnicity thought. Then if we look at like the idea that we're all the same species, we're all the human race, but it's so hard for because you see people that look different from you or you see people that look exactly like you and then your mind starts putting them in categories and tribes just like survival was back in the day i mean it's not really a huge difference as much as people like to think we are super advanced we are very compared to back in the day but in, there's so many aspects that are the exact same i mean even with the covid uh fear kind of scaring almost like seems like every time you go on twitter or something there's a new article a new this a new that Nuclear winter during um, when the nuke wars, Cold War was going on, there was people knocking on other people's doors, selling them bomb shelter spots, saying that you better you never know when a nuclear war is going to happen. It's the same thing. It's a different time period, which just makes it interesting because 
it brings into the bigger point of if you understand your past, you'll understand like, you know, kind of the future. I mean, you're going to end up repeating probably the same thing. And that just makes a bigger example of trying to understand these ancient origins or these types of things like people, for instance, the giants, that's probably one I'm the most fascinated with. Now, you gave a good thought in my head when you talked about maybe you're seeing your shadows. Maybe those are giants. Maybe they wrote those down like these giant creatures they were trying to describe their shadows would be interesting. But then how do we find bones of like nine foot femurs and all this type of stuff that's going on? And I'm like, look, I think my biggest fear is that they're hiding from us the fact that we probably hunted those things to the end of extinction. And I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. They did that to the dodo bird. And nobody talks about it because it's so long ago. Nobody cares. That's the same thing with the giants. Oh, you give it yeah. enough time. Yeah, I don't know if you saw there was a new species of, I think it was kind of like a dinosaur whale thing discovered. And um, they laid a human next to it. And even its jawbone was about five human lengths. Kill it. Kill it. It was immense. <laughs> it lived in the ocean and it was immense. But um yeah, the giant thing for me, I, 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 it's got kind of a bit of a, a joke because I also write about ice giants, which are planetary um, <laughs> bodies, oh, uh, Neptune okay. and Uranus. So that's where the giant thing comes in. It has a little bit of a crossover with a nod to, yeah, my giant. I, my mind immediately went Loki. When, my mind immediately went Loki when you said that because he's frost giant. So I was like, oh, my yeah. God, wait, is she talking <laughs> yeah, about there's actual frost what... giants out there? Yeah, that's what everyone thinks. So I, I, I have a very like historic kind of um, touch on astronomy feet, um, thing on my, my bio, but then I say lover of ice giants and um, people don't make that automatic link to planetary science. But yeah, um, yeah so I, it is my love of Neptune and Uranus, which and the history of them and the discovery of them and all the exciting things that we are yet to find out about them because we know very little about those two planets. And they are very unusual. Um, and here's a little fact about ice giants then. Um, they are the most discovered planet in the universe at the moment. So we, we're looking at all these exoplanets around um, different stars. So these, um, and the, the biggest category is ice giants. And there are more ice giants out there been discovered than any other category of planet. And we know, so little about the two ice giants that we have in our solar system, uh, Uranus and Neptune, and they've only had a fly past uh, spacecraft, which was Voyager 2, which visited 1986 with Uranus and 1989 with Neptune, and there's no dedicated mission ever been to those two planets. And um, if they are the most abundant planet in the universe, which you know, that's what we're suggesting they possibly could be, um, why wouldn't we want to know more about them? They're highly unusual. And <laughs> well, why is Bill Nelson from NASA, the main director, coming and saying that our origins might be somewhere on Mars? Like, why are they talking about Venus's atmosphere below the surface of it actually might be survivable? Like, I'm just sitting here like all this stuff that everybody's ran off of for the longest time. Like, did were you guys hiding this information or were you guys just finding it out now? You guys are finding out a, like the rapid growth in space travel. I think it was a year ago. SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk's first rocket that was supposed to land crashed and everyone was raising hell about the fact that you just ice killed a bunch of wildlife in that area. You did all this type of stuff. Now he's doing eight or nine different missions and everyone's like, yeah, he's doing his 10th one. I'm like, remember before where everyone said like, just like every teacher has ever said to me in school that you're never going to amount to anything. You said the same thing to Elon and now he's doing now. I have issues with Elon only because, um, he sends way too much stuff up into space, which makes it very hard for any astronomer, astrophysicist person, radio astronomer, whoever, to be able to actually see through all the garbage that's out there and be able to actually try and find some like maybe new discoveries or something of that sort. But I mean, it's human innovation. Someone's got to keep trying their hardest to do whatever they possibly can to get to whatever goal they're heading towards. And right now his goal is Mars. I just think that there's a lot here that we should also be understanding as well, too. I love space. Space probably keeps my ego in check because when I look up at the stars at night, I realize how minuscule my problems are to the grand scheme of everything. But man, 
I'm still over here, like trying to pronounce Hedgestone, Stonehenge, right? So like, I like to know what these little things are, because when I see an object like that, I get a feeling inside of myself, much like people do when they look up at the stars at night, where I start going, what does this mean? Is this like, I mean, I know back in the day, everyone practiced rituals. Was this a ritual ground? What is this type of thing? People say it's a way to depict time. I'm like, is it a way to depict time with the shadows? Possibly. But the fact that we can't have a clear answer makes it even more fascinating of what this could possibly be. I mean, through your work or anything like that, have you came across anything that's been able to be actually narrowed down as this is what it is? Or is a lot of it just speculation? Um, I think you can offer up interpretations, but they will always <laughs> have some academics. But it's like anything, um, even in astronomy with a scientific um, advances, you will have, a, um, you know, an interpretation or the best that we can do now for science. And then people will come and look at it and they will offer challenges as to how that can be improved. Um, but certainly when you start to look way back into history at ancient sites and connectivity to the night sky, then um, we don't have little more than how the monuments are laid out and the, the experiences that we can have at the site and also things that may have been passed down in folklore or we might be able to go and look at different cultures and how they connected and their stories yeah. around the night sky. So, um, for instance, the Milky Way, which most of us can't see now due to light pollution, um, Carolyn, under pristine dark skies, yeah. That little headset thing. Yeah. Is that, is you were that saying Milky Way, and then all I'm hearing sounds like a cat yeah. scratching a post. That's <laughs> uh, all right. Is that better? So I'll, I'll, I'll go again. So the Milky Way, which um, under pristine dark skies we can see, would have been the largest feature in the night sky. And there is a huge amount of folklore from history about the Milky Way. And most people nowadays would go out and you don't even see the Milky Way. You've got no opportunity of visualizing it and, and seeing it with your own eyes um, under really dark skies. Um, a lot of the folklore points, not all of it, but a lot of the folklore of the Milky Way points to it being a pathway for the dead, for the ancestors. So the stars within it were your ancestors that had gone up into the sky and formed this pathway. Now, um, particularly Aboriginal um, narratives also add in stories about campfires and where you're walking with your ancestors to the stars of the campfires and then they've got um, the darker areas, the lakes within it. So you're walking along a bridge over lakes and water in the sky. So a lot of people think it's it's a pathway or a waterway and um, that that it's either for the dead themselves that the stars are for that them themselves or that um, you're on a pathway as you pass, pass over so it's a pathway to the afterlife um, but you know there is many cultures that think that but then there are other cultures that think slightly different things about the Milky Way but we can we can only take these ideas so we've got a, an ancient site in Cornwall um, which has um, it's on the ground and it has a pathway of stones put together but these stones weren't made to be walked upon by humans because they're all rickety and pointy and and it's quite long and wide so it's about um, 15 meters long and about a meter width and it extends between two stone circles now these stones themselves are all different materials but quite a few are quartz which is kind of a white and a blue shiny um, material and some of them are kind of different colored stones and it's been suggested that this could have been people putting stones down on the ground to represent their ancestors in the milky way and um, we had a look at this under low light conditions and because of the quartz within the pathway itself it illuminated up at low light conditions as well so if you put torches or um, little campfires around it it would stand out against the background of the stones that made up the two stone circles and we think it would have been a really significant site for them particularly at one time of year so um, during um, March and um, 
during September when the sun is at even for day, daylight and nighttime, we reach a, a, a time which we call the equinox, which is halfway between the two solstice points. And at the equinox, at the March equinox, um, in the evening within the Bronze Age, so I'm going back about 4,000 years now, the Milky Way itself, um, as, as it gets dark, would be lying against the ground uh, around um, from the north end to the south end of the site. And as it's lying against the ground, it would have been a connectivity maybe for their ancestors to connect um, to their ancestors in the sky um, and bring them down to ground level. So really ground truthing what was going on with their ancestors and, and allowing them to connect to these long lost people in the sky. And, and we think they deliberately built this pathway to, to represent the Milky Way in the sky itself. So, so yeah, so that's an idea about um, how we can start unpicking what's gone on in the past and the kind of ideas that go around my head as I'm going out, you know, yeah. how, how can this work? What does it look like? Does it give a representation? Does it align to anything in particular? Is there any phenomenology which I can experience here that may add to my interpretation of the site? So, yeah, yeah they're, they're the kind of, my uh, mind starts wondering because um, when you start talking about how like if they look up at the stars and they consider them one of their ancestors in some religions or in some types of areas, whoever was experiencing that type of mindset, um, I start wondering what happens if there was like one of those lunar eclipses that happened? Do you just freak out? Do you consider this a day of when the people who have gone to the afterlife or whoever start to be able to come back for a short brief amount of time as long as that eclipse is in the in the sky i mean for me i like the fantasy aspect of it i get a little bit sketchy or i would say i get a little bit hesitant when it starts coming into like you're a capricorn with a pisces rising in the third house of the fifth sun i'm like okay that's a little bit too much for my books but i like the idea that like when you're looking up at the stars you're able to use those to be able to play plot where your direction is going to go and have a better understanding of maybe a person's mindset or thinking when that happens. I mean, to think that there wasn't people who were pro 100% more science-based back then compared to the more of the belief factor really depends on where you're at. But I, I, I think... I don't know. I'm not like, I love the fantasy side, like I said, but I'm also Neil deGrasse Tyson when it comes to Oh, well, the reason why they got these astrological horoscope signs was because they took drugs. And that's how you see a person with a vase with a fish coming out of it. And I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I think, yeah. And also those um, constellations, which, you know, make up the zodiacal band, which go, you know, travels around in the stars. They, they are a construct of just one set of people. So um, most of the constellations were put together by ancient Greeks. Um, a number of them were added to by the Arabic community. And then more and more constellations were added or removed. It's, it's not been a static thing. And um, we also have um, where we mark um, like right ascension has changed over time because of procession and um, we have various things the way that the earth moves you've got to think that we're, we we calculate a year by the sun uh, the earth traveling around the sun and reaching the same spot but you've also got to think within that time we're also traveling around the milky way so we will never reach the same spot in space everything is moving um, and um it's it's very difficult then to to have narratives of um, predictions and uh, astro astrological predictions and things. But they historically they are quite interesting because um, a lot of early star maps were were drawn and a lot of research was done into things like timings of solar eclipses and lunar eclipses by people who were particularly interested in having their horoscopes done. So. Um, there is beautiful illuminated manuscripts held in um, various museums and the British Library over here of um, lunar eclipse calculations done by monks, which were done for royalty. So um, when Henry V went on the battlefield and, he, and there was this eclipse and it turned the tide of the battle for him, he, he went on that battlefield having been told there is a possibility of an eclipse. It's been predicted and it will, you know, obviously they, they would have put a, 
a good narrative on it for him. <laughs> the, the other side will run in horror and, you know, scared and all this. But yeah, so they wanted to know these things and they wanted them to use them as a prediction tool for themselves. But, you know, I think in modern society, we can kind of grasp that it, it wouldn't work, you know, with scientific minds and things like that, that these things don't work and reading you know, or two sentences every week in your local newspaper of don't go outside today and because your cat don't come out from the side building or something and it's going to be unlucky, um, <laughs> you know, is, is not is not really, <laughs> you know, what, what we're, you know, what we're thinking about. So. When we talk about like your first kind of step up to maybe any of these sites or anything that's new that seems old history or something that you're just trying to learn more about now having like an entertaining kind of mindset to it, like, oh, it'd be fun if it was like this. Do you ever start to wonder if it's just more of like I was talking about before with the ritualistic aspect, but more of an idea of maybe isolating or kind of in memoriam of the stars? Like, because you can look at that at two aspects now. One is that if you're saying that those are afterlife family members or there's some type of, uh, uh, you know, descendants or spirits or your whichever you want to say, then you would want to try and find things to be able to communicate to those or try and find ways to be able to kind of uh, make a place where you could pray to them or do some type of closer communication with it? Or was it a way of maybe a scientific way of trying to isolate the stars? I mean, it's it's so hard to conflict, but I'm still like down this path of like, I want to know why. Um, but okay, I don't think so we don't even I, have that answer. Yeah, I don't think we entirely have that answer. But my gut feeling from spending a lot of time in these places is that and also from my knowledge of watching what's going on with the motion of the sun the moon and the stars is i don't need to erect an a stone observatory let's say to know where the sun is going to rise at particular times of the year i can watch that myself and anywhere i can think oh that's where the sun's going to rise or i don't need to go to the whole effort of bringing in huge blocks of stone and erecting them and pointing them in a direction. So I don't think they were doing it to predict where things are going to rise. I think they were possibly doing it to show that they had that knowledge. So it brings in an idea of maybe um, of power within certain sections of the community and um, knowledge collection between them or uh, as a community doing a community project to show that they would celebrate at certain times and then they could go and watch um, certain events at certain times. But yeah, they, they certainly were fully engaged, I think, with the Skyscape in ways that we aren't. Um, so as I said, as I started, 50% of what we see is the sky. We don't tend to look up, we tend to be looking down as we're walking around. You know, most people aren't that observant. They most people don't spend the amount of time that our ancestors would have been spending outside and um and they developed relationships with the sky which would have been really deep seated and, and and a knowledge bank that we you know we, we could only you know hope to to gain uh, over our lifetime really because that's what they had they didn't have all the distractions that we have in life so um, they they would have been out there living this and and relating to it in ways you know that we can only um, you know think about really. So. Well, a lot of areas also don't have the luxury of being able to see stars as well as they used to be. I mean, I think that's everywhere just with the amount of light pollution that's out there. But it explains why a lot of people who take psychedelics really talk about loving nature so much and looking up at the stars at night. I mean, it just there's something you get a different effect to it. I, I don't know if it makes it more fun. Sure. But I mean, back in the day, that was a lot of what people did back then as well, too, whether it was for religious ceremonies or whether it was just to experience some type of enlightenment or form of that sort. And when you're spending, I mean, you don't have a roof over your head. You have what a, a, a tent if you made a tent out of leaves or something like that. Sure. Or if you're sleeping out on the ground, getting ready for the battle at the camp for the next day or wherever you're traveling to, you saw the stars at night. You didn't have a lamp that was going to take away that. I mean, I think it's interesting now with the lockdown and everything that everyone's kind of shifted to wanting this, you know, look, go outside and explore and live life a little bit more. 
more, but at the same time, there's still like, there's that, that sliver of that hope for like, Oh, go out and explore the world. And then there's also that reverting with technology of just sitting back inside of their house, doing some type of multiverse thing where you can experience it through a computer lens rather than experience it in real life. Plus you don't have to go anywhere. You have to change out of your, your, you know, your clothes, you can sleep it. You can do it in your underwear and be in the metaverse and you'll be in a suit in the metaverse. It doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, it's yeah, just and, and, interesting. And the, those are things that are going to just develop now, aren't they? These ideas of putting yourself virtually out there because so many people now have, have learned the benefits of not moving much, if you know what I mean. Not it's, getting, you it's, know. It's great if you want to take some kids on a field trip to Stonehenge and you put on virtual reality and you let them explore that because then you don't have to worry about taking a bunch. Like I'm surprised like my teachers did that back in the day. We went like three hours away to an aquarium or something. Jesus, imagine losing a 12 year old kid. Like that's just, that's scary in itself to me. But if you have virtual reality, it's going to be amazing, but it still takes out the major effect of what you're seeing through virtual reality is pixels and something that it could add in, in a type of fake situation. It's not the same thing as seeing the real thing. Even if I went to Stonehenge and it happened to be the worst day ever, weather wise, when it was just storming, you couldn't see anything compared to what it would be like on a clear night with stars up in the sky. I'd rather know that what I'm experiencing right now is real rather than something that's virtual and fake. Because once you open up that door, I mean, I can show you, a hundred something pictures I did last night of AI created art. Now, let me tell you something. It is scary in the fact that I'm never going to be able to create art that amazing, but it's also scary how much I like it because isn't the whole point of art being able to make you speechless on what just was created. And that's what this art always does every single time in a matter of like three, 30 seconds, it just creates it. And I'm over here painting something for like a couple of days. And I'm like, Oh my God, like these are why NFTs are going for so much. It's stupid stuff like that. But once you open up the door for that, you really can't undo it. It's kind of like smoking a cigarette for the first time. There's no never smoking a cigarette. You've now smoked one. Even if you stop, you still know what that taste is like. I, I, I do agree on some level, but I, I think as well, that whole thing on experiencing a site, as you said, you were taken out at 12 to an aquarium or somewhere. But if I take small groups of people out to a site and we experience um, something um, quite special there. Maybe it is a, a sunset without any clouds on a significant date, or maybe we've walked in um, in almost like a professional way, so taken a, a number of hours to get there. Um, there the, those are experiences which you can't, or you're going to really struggle to recreate yeah. virtually. But virtual reality does give you those opportunities to allow um, people who perhaps can't, for whatever reason, go to sites or, um, or, or are in other countries or, or, or just want to research sites in, in different ways. It, it allows them to experience sites under maybe different conditions, such as under skyscapes um, with um, the Milky Way at different times of the year and things like that. But yeah. I don't know where it's going to go. Technology always astounds me at how fast it moves on. And we've talked about the space yeah. <laughs> race and things. And, but yeah, it's just amazing how fast everything just moves on and on. And I just feel we're at a, kind of another tipping point for where all this is going to go, especially with graphics and interactive um, yeah, methods of using technology. Um, yeah, they're going to push the boundaries, aren't they? So. I hope it goes in a beneficial direction, though, on a concept of maybe being able to restore some sites that have been degrading. Because, I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize is that these sites have been here for a long time, but slowly, piece by piece, they change. I mean, if you see the original uh, pictures of what the pyramids looked like when they were first built, when they were recreated image-wise compared to what you see now, you're just like, wow, it was all pearl white. Like, that's why that type of limestone or whatever they used was actually like a clear white to it. And then we look at it now, and it's all dark brown. It looks like uh, after you drink coffee for 30 years, your teeth just do not look like that fresh porcelain. And it's just different. Different. It's like, wow, it's like, it'd be interesting if we can develop technology or maybe nanobots, whatever. I mean, we're at that level already with nanobots where they've been able to be able to filter out certain chemicals in water by using small little robotic things, which is interesting in itself. It's scary in its own as well, too. Um, but 
if you're able to restore a landscape that might have been partially torn apart or something and be able to recreate it, maybe not make something completely, I guess, back to what it was originally, but be able to at least get it somewhat there so it still lasts a little bit longer for future generations to see and so you can find a way because the only other answer I could think of to restore a site or save a site would be to block it off from the public and then encapsulate it in something. But then that misses a piece. Like for instance, are you willing to accept the fact that this thing is going to be around a, a lot longer, but it's going to be a completely different connection to the object all because you want to preserve its safeness. It's kind of like a sarcophagus for a mummy. Like, okay, you can leave it down in the tomb and it just naturally degrades, or you can take it out and then put it in a glass thing and preserve it so at least people can see it. But it's like, but there's that risk. What happens if we pull it out of there and it, it just, it, it, we break something. You got to take that risk. It's like, are you willing to accept that deal? Because I don't think people really pay attention to a lot of these things. Um, but I think for and instance when you, when you talk preservation, you're also talking about landscape surrounding landscape and skyscape as yeah. well as the monument itself so if you're just going to kind of enclose off or encapsulate a monument you're not going to preserve it in the way that it was would have been anyway yeah. or and and it's a hugely positive thing to allow people to go and see these things and because it gives them a connectivity which um you know if they had no connectivity to a lot of these ancient sites and they wouldn't be interested in preserving them and looking after them and taking their children to visit them and you know and passing on their knowledge about them or their experiences at them and and you know and all of that is wonderful so um yeah they should be shared and they should be visited um you know it's it's an important part of conservation of these things it's just so hard because you're um when you even if you pitch that idea as beautiful as it sounds i'm not saying me for instance but i'm saying for you know just the idea of like that's what it means it's something pre preserving our history compared to some person who's doing the project and just sees money fly in front of their face it's just so hard to get our minds distracted off of that concept that money's not the most important thing out there i mean there's plenty of land space that's just been completely wiped out for instance like right near my town there's stuff i used to go by when i was a little kid that's all like walmarts and royal farms gas stations and all these types of things and i'm like we have five of these and they're all in like a mile of each other why do we need another one it's like well it'll be closer to you more convenience and i'm like i don't care like there were specific spots a lake that used to be right there that's no longer there and it's like you start getting to a point where it's like this is what you're going to end up missing which is just i mean you wonder why there's a depression issue with a lot of people is that you don't have any natural landscape for people to really enjoy without them having to travel an hour or so away from their homes like make it ease of access for me for instance i live in a beach town when i open up my front door there's the beach that's kind of like a natural effect where I remember being gone for like a couple of weeks or a whole summer or something and being like, damn, I really miss that. Like opening up your front door and the beach is right there, but it's been around me so much I get used to it. And then people get used to something new. And my fear is with technology is that people are going to get used to something that necessarily they shouldn't be getting used to. You shouldn't be getting used to people being right on top of you every single day. It might it might be nice to kind of go through life and be like, well, at least I'm used to it. It's not though, because you just lost so much. And I don't think people really realize that like polar bears. I haven't seen an ad for a freaking polar bear in the longest time, but they were talking about it. Like what, like five years ago, 10 years ago that they're all going to die. I don't ever hear a peep about them now, probably because they went away and nobody wants to talk about it. Like you can't, you can't just let that be normalized. You can't have this type of landscape be ruined. You can't have a, a highway that goes under Stonehenge. You can't it's cause you're going to normalize that. And then when are they going to start being able to put Coca-Cola advertisement billboards on top of one of those giant monuments? You start. Or, or Coca-Cola advertisement in space. Have you seen the advert, which no, that's not happening. That's not happening. Come on, don't tell me that. Oh no. No, it wasn't Coca-Cola, but yeah, they they um I think it was above uh one of the Far East cities. They they shot up advertisement in space and yeah, um yeah, it's all getting a bit blade runner, isn't it? Um <laughs> How do you feel about freaking uh, William Shatner going up into space? Oh, <laughs> that man's been wrecked yeah. ever since. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, if there was anyone to go into space and it was a celeb, you know, why not William Shatner? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I respect it, but I also still like the stance of uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin talking about that space was meant for an elite class of people, like people that trained specifically to go up there and went through all that effort to go up there. I agree with that, but at the same time, I mean, I get it. Star Trek guy, let's put him up into space. You know how funny that is. It's just, it, it makes it difficult because I think when. You know, all, all the celebrities and all the A-list people are probably going to end up going first before the normal people do. But I, I just think, do they, like, I'm not a big space guy. Like, I like space, but I like the oceans a little bit more just because I think that's right here. And I always get astounded when I talk about Atlantis and stuff like that. But the whole space, like living on another planet, I'm more than happy to stay on Earth. But the idea that if you have enough money, you get to go to space and then we get into this class elitist type thinking. It's where, you know, that's where it's going to go. I mean, the newest people that had the flip iPhones or the newest iPhones were people that could afford those, the rappers, the whoever that had the thing. And then it just trickles down to the rest of everybody. And I'm like, was space something that important? It should be something that you have to qualify for or do something to be able to go up there. So it's not just if you have enough money, because that's so, I don't know, that's just twisted in my eyes. It, it is. It is very twisted. There was. Um, I, I know you can actually pay, and it, it well it used to be able to pay to be a private person to go up to the ISS, but you did have to do a lot of training. Um, but yeah, this it's all opening up. We've got a, a spaceport with Virgin Orbit in Cornwall about to open, uh, which is going to take people to the edge of space. Um, I don't know how much they're going to charge. I, I reckon it would be in the your firstborn child, your first hundred of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, yeah, your firstborn child or, or a couple of hundred thousand. But yeah, I it's it's just out of the realm of most average person to consider paying those sorts of costs for a one-hour trip into space. It's you know it's just way beyond anything we could have imagined it's it's the cost of a house it's the cost of you know the family home or you know it's it's just impossible so it is going to make it a very elite thing and yeah in that in itself is not great and I don't see how they're going to reduce the cost of putting people into space because it costs an awful lot of money oh it's simple you just you make a cheaper yeah. spacecraft you make if you're saying that that type of metal or that material costs a dollar more than the other one go with the cheaper option let's go with the the great value version which is the off brand of the off brand and you're like well yeah so we'll be all in value space suits <laughs> with a little bit of air leaking in. why is there just duct tape all over this thing like that's what, that's what it is <laughs> yeah so i you know um i wouldn't say never if i got offered a trip into space i would yeah. probably do it but um it's not something that i'm going to chase down in life um yeah maybe my grandchildren might have more of an opportunity than me who knows but um i hope they do it sensitively and they don't destroy the environment up there by doing it um no, i do I, I do yeah. have to ask though how do you feel about the whole alien thing Ah, okay. So, um, life, is there life out there? Yes, possibly. Yeah. Um, we'd be stupid to say no with the size of the universe. Um, whether there is, uh, within the immediate locality of, let's say, our solar system, I don't think there's anything other than past historic microbial life, or maybe microbial life, as you said, in the atmosphere of Venus or something like that. So very, very tiny, tiny things living out there. Um, they actually let a tardigrade out of the ISS, and I think it survived. Um, that, <laughs> which <laughs> these are these tiny bug things, these um, yeah. water water bear things. Um, uh, larger, more intelligent life. Well, we're finding a huge amount of planets out there in in the Milky Way, but nothing's communicating back with us yet. So. Um, possibilities that um, things have evolved but they could have evolved into different things that don't know how to communicate um, we get a little bit further we've got SETI sending out signals continually and there's nothing coming back but you've got to think we are at a very very tiny point of the history of 
our development as a solar system. So we're 4.6 billion years. We've been around and we have this tiny bit at the end where we've got the technology to start sending out radio signals and receive them and look for other intelligent life. Um, it's possibly out there, let's put it that way. But at the moment, they're not communicating back with us. Um, I don't think there, there's people visiting us on spaceships at the moment either. I think the distances are incredible when you start looking at the distances involved uh, and things um, from the nearest stars and stuff like that. It's, it's just incredible. But yeah, whether there is life on other, other planets out there, most, most likely, so yeah. let's put it that way. I'm not going to say no. <laughs> I'm I'm in that boat too. It's just I, when I start hearing all these announcements about this giant thing, and I just start getting to the point like, are you pushing for funding? What are you doing? Like, is this real? But then you hear like, I I respect Avi Loeb, even though a lot of people like in the UFO community really don't like him, and I just kind of go like, he just talked about clones a minute ago, and I think everyone has just heard about clones for the first time, which makes it very very scary. For people that like aren't, I mean, if you want to call it conspiracy stuff, sure. But I don't know. I get really interested in that because I've talked to people who, you know, say they've been abducted, uh, experienced stuff like that. And I'm like, I, I just don't know. I mean, I don't think we're alone in the universe. That's for sure. But do what would be the point of them coming here? I have no clue. And, and just at this very minuscule point of time when humanity has been in this position. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, who knows? I, could be I still want to know what Stonehenge is first. Like, that's it. <laughs> I don't really care. If they want to come and tell me, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we all, all kind of want to know what Stonehenge is. There's been so much research on Stonehenge that I think they're getting a good idea about where the stones came from, the communities that brought them there. They've done DNA testing now on some of the cremated remains that were found there. And they came from this Welsh group of people that supposedly brought these blue stones which formed the first stage of Stonehenge so they've moved them quite a significant distance across the British countryside from Wales into England and um, yeah and and then they formed a community there and, and over time it's become a really significant focal point in the landscape with a big community in Durrington Walls next door which is where they live and you know they could have been coming there for very ritual led um, significant dates such as the winter solstice or the summer solstice but you know these are all up for grabs these theories so um, lots of research into them but they're, they're wonderful fun as well so they engage people with with the landscape and with the sky and things and, and that's important to me because if, if people aren't interested in, in in the landscape or the sky they won't be interested in um, the conservation of it and the ongoing um, you know maintaining what it's at now because it is degraded in the last hundred years and um yeah we've got to try and maintain or improve where we can um otherwise it, some of these things are going to be lost for the future so it's a real shame much as the milky way has been lost for many people now and the yeah. stars um yeah it's, you know it's it's, it's difficult so um, well, an important way to preserve the past is also by showing people and talking about like you have just done to so someone out there listening that gets to see kind of the light in your eyes kind of light up when you start talking about these types of things. That's important stuff. And I think that interests people into the reason why we need to preserve a lot of these things as well, too. So you can get so wrapped up into the new age stuff that it gets you forget about the past. And I think the past is probably some of the most important information out there. I think there's so much value in it, at least when I come across uh, something of ancient history or I start talking to someone about ancient history or anything of that sort, because I think it has a lot of correlating factors into the environment that's around us. Even today, we built up walls to kind of shut out the outside, but sh there's some key stuff that you can't just forget about. There's key stuff that just can't go away, but you can try your best to hide from it. I just think it's always going to be there, and I think it's important that it should always be there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And is there uh, any place that people can find you? Do you have any links? Um, any? Uh, yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, I'm Ka at Carolyn Kennett on Twitter. Um, and I have a website, archaeoastronomycornwall.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but less. <laughs> but yeah, Twitter is my main thing. <laughs> uh, well, I'll put all your links in the description. You said it's oh, archaeo ar archaeological yeah. history at, at Archaeo Cornwall? astronomy. Archaeo Cornwall. astronomy. Cornwall. 
Twitter.com. It's in my t- Twitter bio anyway. Yeah. You'll find it there. I just yeah. want to say it again in case anybody doesn't, because people don't yeah. really check the episode details. They move on to the next thing. So I'm like, That's say okay. it so it sticks in their head. <laughs> but I'll make sure I link it all in the description. Carolyn, I really appreciate you for doing the podcast. And thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the blank.